Welcome to the Chasing Happiness Podcast, where we explore the secrets to achieving a fulfilling and joyful life. Our mission is to provide you with the tools, insights, and inspiration you need to overcome obstacles and thrive in all areas of your life. Each week, we bring you interviews with thought leaders, experts, and everyday people who have found happiness in the face of adversity. We cover a wide range of topics, from personal development and entrepreneurship to health and wellness. So whether you're looking to achieve financial freedom, improve your relationships, or enhance your overall well-being, you'll find the guidance you need on the Chasing Happiness podcast. Let's get to this week's episode. Brian DeMent from Chasing Happiness podcast. I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. Today on the podcast, we have Storm Cunningham. And Storm is the executive director of Reconomics Institute the Society of Revitalization and Resilience Professionals, which helps ensure that communities worldwide have certified rising places practitioners. Storm, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. You're more than welcome. So there's a lot in there to unpack. So let's just get right into it in a little bit about who you are, what you're in your background, and then we'll get into what you're doing. All right. Um, The relevant part of my background is a lot of Irrelevant stuff. If you want to go way back, I, for if you want to add a little color to your podcast, you can point out that I was a Green Beret scuba medic, but that's getting way back into the irrelevant part of my life. <laughs> Why would that be irrelevant? That means thank you for your service. First of all, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's not a, a only if you wanted to focus on what I do professionally these days. Although there is actually a connection between those days and now, I was on a Army Special Forces scuba team. And after I left the Army, I continued scuba diving. And that led to my helping out a a German scientist who was working in Jamaica and who needed some volunteers to come down to help him with his coral restoration technology. He had invented the world's first technology for actually bringing dead coral reefs back to life. Oh, wow. So I went down there, spent a week with him installing these experiments on the ocean floor and his technology worked beautifully. I actually got to see places that had been completely lifeless just three months before, full of all kinds of colorful uh, life down there. And it was at that point that I suddenly realized I'd always been a sustainability green guy, that kind of thing. But It was at that point that I suddenly realized that we don't have to be satisfied with merely slowing down the rate at which we destroy the planet, which is what most sustainability and green initiatives do. They're basically about polluting less, wasting less, destroying less. But here I realized we could actually restore. We can actually undo damage that's already done. And that's a very different proposition from simply slowing down the rate at which we're destroying the world. When you're restoring, you're actually making the world better, not just making it worse, slower. Um, And that's a lot more inspiring. It was about a decade after that, that I started writing my first book, The Restoration Economy, which was the first book to document all of the new disciplines and industries that were restoring various aspects of the planet, not just natural. I mean, it was watershed restoration, ecological restoration, regenerative agriculture, but also the built environment, infrastructure renewals, historic building restoration, catastrophe recovery. When you put all this together, 
And it was literally in the trillions of dollars per year and growing fast. It was literally the fastest growing part of the world economy, but nobody was really looking at it in that life cycle manner. So it was an invisible bit of huge bit of good news that nobody was paying attention to because all they were paying attention to were the nouns. What kind of stuff is it? Is it a building? Is it a watershed? Is it a road? But when you focus on the verbs, what are you doing to it? Are you destroying it? Are you maintaining it? Are you restoring it or you revitalizing it? When you focus on the verbs, all of a sudden you see the world in a totally different manner. And you can see when you look for it, you can see restoration, revitalization, rejuvenation, redevelopment, remediation, renewal, reuse, all of this re-stuff happening all around us. And it becomes a much more positive world. And it leads to other things. I'm in that same line. I go into neighborhoods in cities that have been left behind from private investment. And we take dilapidated homes, either raise them, get rid of them and rehab them or build new ones. And we're actually just started a project uh, this week to where these houses that we are working on have not been occupied for, I think, 25 years, 25 to 26 years. Wow. They were built in the early 1900s. And we've saved three of them already, rehabbed them, have families moved into them, bought them, everything. But this next batch, we just couldn't save. They were so far gone. And now we're just going to build brand new affordable homes on them and yep. allow people to come in and have an opportunity to one, be a homeowner, but two, to have a brand new home that otherwise they couldn't ever afford. And I know that. I get that. I go into some pretty rough neighborhoods that have been left behind and it's, wow, all you got to yep. do is come and give it some love and some TLC and it'll flourish. Oh, that's great work. You're doing the real work. I don't do anything useful. I just talk <laughs> and write, give people advice and all that, but you're the one who's actually changing the physical world. So thank you for that. Yes. It's, it's been a long time coming, but we're just starting to get into the nonprofit world and, and start helping people through that. So that'll be something we'll do. From your aspect, you get outside of doing what you did in the military. What got you into this space today? What's motivating you to do what you're doing? Um, it, it was really that moment there where it's that epiphany where I suddenly realized that we could actually earn our living making the world better, which doesn't really sound all that revolutionary. Everybody thinks they're making a living, making the world better by what they do for a living, even if they're just serving hamburgers. You're alleviating hunger for a moment. When you're talking about lasting change, actually improving people's future, not just improving their present, that's a very different thing. And to make to improve people's future, you need to take a more kind of systemic, ongoing approach to it rather than just a project by project approach. And so I've written two more books. My McGraw-Hill book came out in 2008 called Rewealth, which was full of case studies of places that had come back to life in a spectacular manner. And the most recent book, uh, Reconomics, came out in 2020. And that gets to the heart of what I've really been trying to discover for the last 20 years. Because ever since my first book, The Restoration Economy, came out in 2002, I've done the usual author, speaker, consultant, workshop leader uh, sort of thing. And so I've been doing hundreds of talks at conferences and planning meetings all over the world, literally all over the world, from China to Poland to Mexico. And so I usually stay around for the whole conference that I'm keynoting. 
So for every talk I give, I usually hear at least a dozen talks. So I've probably heard more stories of revitalization successes and failures than anybody else on the planet. And as a result, I started looking for the commonalities. Doesn't China is a very different place from Poland, which is a very different place from Mexico, but they all had successes and failures. So I started looking for what's universal here. No matter where you are, what things are usually present in the successes? What things are usually missing in the failures? And I distilled those insights into that most recent book, Economics, so that anybody in any situation, whether it's a rural region trying to revive an agricultural economy or a huge city trying to cope with uh, climate change and become more resilient or a war-torn region trying to recover from disaster, whatever it might be, that they'd have some basic principles and frameworks they could work with that would drastically increase the likelihood that they'll succeed. So how do we succeed in this space? It's tough because I know my battles and I know that we've failed in a lot of aspects, but how can we succeed in this space and be able to help? I guess the best way is to recover some of these lost spaces. The key thing for uh, helping folks like you succeed is to get better support from the community side. So that number one, to remove barriers and things that make your work harder and to speed things up, but also to put policies and programs in place that actually make your work easier and not just making it less hard. (laughs) It'll all rehabbing your house will always be hard work, but it There are all kinds of projects going on in cities that are renewing the place. They're daylighting and restoring urban streams. They're renewing infrastructure, all this sort of cleaning up brownfields, reusing those old industrial properties. But in most cases, that's done on a project by project, stop, start manner. And the community itself as a whole is just in this mode of let's just do lots of good stuff and hope that revitalization magically appears. So basically, the city's future is in the hands of hope and magic. And that's not a very reliable source of a better future. And what's missing, not to sound too wonky, but what's missing is the process. You talk to anybody who produces anything on a reliable basis, whether it's a farmer producing corn or a tax commissioner producing tax revenues or a factory producing cars or T-shirts. To reliably produce any of those things, they need to have a process. You can ask any of them, what's your process for growing corn? And they can tell you. Uh, But you talk to the average mayor or economic developer or planner or whoever's running a city or who's taken charge of the city's future in some way, ask them, okay, well, what's your revitalization process? And yeah, they just look at you blankly. And so then you break down the the process that I've documented, that I've found that works virtually everywhere on the planet, has six elements. And they're all common sense elements, nothing magic about any of them. The magic is in putting them all together. Mm. The first one is to have an ongoing program to regenerate a city or a region or whatever. That's not something that's going to happen from an individual project. It's something you need to work on an ongoing basis, like our bodies. We hardly have any cells in our body that we had seven years ago. We've basically got a whole new body. And that's how cities and ecosystems work. They're constantly replacing, regenerating, repurposing, renewing stuff. And 
But cities don't do that, except in a haphazard way. The mayor sits around waiting for some private developer to come along and propose a project, and the city says yes or no. So that's a very reactive mode. They're not really taking charge of their city's future. So the first step of this process is to put together an ongoing program for revitalization or resilience, or preferably both of them, because both revitalization and resilience come from exactly the same activities, which is repurposing your existing assets, your natural assets, built assets, socioeconomic assets. And when you find a viable new purpose for those old assets, like you're doing with your houses, then the next step is renewing them. And the reason the repurposing comes first is you've got to come up with a viable new purpose for the property in order to raise the money you need to do that second step, which is renewing it. Nobody's going to invest in something if you can't show how it's, go it's going to be revitalized as a result. The third part is the one that most people forget about is that after you've repurposed and renewed a property uh, or an asset of some sort, you need to reconnect it because in most cases, assets have been disconnected from the community in some way, whether it's ecologically or they don't have proper infrastructure so the traffic can't get in there or they don't have broadband internet or whatever the level of connectivity might be. That's where you can usually double or triple the value of, of your renovating work. So that's the ongoing program. The next step is once you've got this program together, you need to come up with a shared vision for the future, which acts as the uh, what builders uh, call uh, performance specification. It's, so it's, it, it, it guides what you want the end result to look like. The next step is a strategy to achieve that vision. This is one that virtually everybody forgets about. Everybody likes to use the word strategy, but when you ask, actually <laughs> ask them, okay, what's your strategy? They'll say, oh, here it is. And they'll plunk a 400-page pl plan on the table. And I say, no, excuse me, that's a plan. What's your strategy? And they'll say, oh, no, that's a strategic plan. Yeah, okay, <laughs> a strategic plan. So what is the strategy and the plan? We'll open up the page and point to the strategy. And then they'll realize, okay, I guess a plan and a strategy aren't the same thing. So then they'll say, oh, our strategy is to improve quality of life and grow jobs. And I'll say, no, that's a vision. That's mm -hmm. the end result you're shooting for. What is your strategy for achieving success? A strategy is... The sole purpose of a strategy is to achieve success. So a strategy's primary purpose is to overcome obstacles to achieving the vision. So how are you going to, what are your obstacles? What are you trying to overcome? And so this is this long, painful process of dealing with people who should know what a strategy is. They're a mayor, they're a governor, and they realize, oh, I guess I didn't know what a strategy was all along. So you've got to have that strategy or everything else is going to fail because that's where the heart of success is in the strategy. Next step is policies. You've got to have work on the policies locally to make sure they're supporting your vision and your strategy, or at least not getting it in the way. It's amazing the number of communities I go to who say, our goal is to revitalize the downtown. Then I look at their policies and they've got all kinds of incentives there for sprawl. Now, how are you going to revitalize your downtown if you're still sending all the new activity out into the outer reaches of the community? And then the next step is partnering, putting together the public-private partnerships that are needed to gather the resource needed to do actual projects. And those projects are the end part. So those are the six elements of a complete process is program, vision, strategy, policies, partnerships, and projects. 
And most places have at least two or three of those. Some even have four or five. Very few have all six. But when you find a place that's got all six, that's where you see the really spectacular revitalization successes. Places that go, places like Chattanooga, Tennessee, that went from the armpit of the United States, a place that Walter Cronkite on national TV said was the filthiest city in the U.S., and less than a decade later was a poster child of revitalization. And they did it because they put all six of those elements together. Yeah. When you talk about sitting down with a mayor or a city council, they typically don't have any type. They have vision. They have an idea of what they want, but there's not any type of strategy or plan behind it. It's just one-offs. And you hit it the nail right on the head. We go into a city and they're like, oh yeah, here's a private investor. Guess what? We'll just go give them some lots and we'll uh, build that way. There's no strategy of where we want to revitalize stuff other than I call them pet projects. That's what the mayors like to do is they just do that. And it's crazy. It's insanity at times, as I say. Right. And I, I forgot to mention the secret sauce. The secret sauce that makes that process work so well is that each of those six elements has to be regenerative in nature. For instance, when you're putting together a project, if it's a sprawl project that's turning a family farm into a shopping mall, that's not regenerative. <laughs> you're wiping out a, a, via, a viable, important part of the agricultural economy to create something that might have a 20 or 30 year lifespan, whereas the farm could be producing income for centuries. So they've got to be, you know, it's a regenerative program or regenerative vision, regenerative strategy, regenerative policies, regenerative partnerships and regenerative projects. And when you've got that regenerative element in there, that's, that's when the magic happens. But how do we get there on these projects? I'm assuming that's where you step in. How do, how do we get there? That's the million dollar question because I yeah. see it on a daily basis. Yeah. And that's been my biggest frustration for the last two decades is that I go in, I do these workshops or a keynote conference or whatever, and everybody claps and say, oh, wow, that's just wonderful. That's exactly what we need to do. And then I check back in a year later and nothing's changed. And in most cases, it's because the people in that audience have no ability to affect change, or at least not the kind of change I was talking about, because they're all locked in their little silos. Oh, we only do roads. We only do work on infrastructure. We only do heritage assets. We only work on brownfields. There's nobody there who can put together that ongoing program for regenerating the entire city or region, because to do so, they'd be stepping on all kinds of political toes. All of a sudden, the people in public works or wherever is going to be say, hey, hold it. What are you doing messing around in my area? It, it's just, it's too, it, the, part of it is the territoriality, the silos that people work in. But part of it too is that <clears throat> there's risk involved and politicians hate risk. You'll hear them promise revitalization in their campaign speeches. But as soon as they are in office, they stopped talking about it so much because somebody's going to say, okay, how are you going to revitalize? What's your strategy? And they don't want to put anything in place that could fail because that's going to in, in impact their chances of getting reelected. So the one safe thing they can do is get a plan written. So what they do is they hold a press conference and say, guess what? We're going to do a comprehensive plan or a revitalization plan or a strategic plan or whatever they call it. 
And, and they, they've got a feather in their cap there. Everybody cheers and says, good, we've got a plan on the way. So the mayor writes a check or if it's going to an outside firm or directs their planning department, if it's, if they're going to do it internally and say, okay, create a plan. And two or three years later, the plan is delivered in another press conference. And the mayor waves the plan around in the air saying, look, we've now got a plan for a better future and more feathers in his cap or her cap. And, and at that point, he's never, there's never been any risk announcing the plan, no risk, buying a plan, no risk, implementing the plan is the risk. So what happens is the plan goes on a shelf and five years later, the cycle starts again. Guess what, folks? We need to renew our plan. And it just keeps going on. And it's a scam. It's a national scam. I, I know tons of planners, and most of them will admit it, usually not till after they retire, because they don't want to hurt their promotion chances. But, but they'll, they'll, what's, were we getting feedback from somewhere? No. Oh, okay. Not I was, on my end. Okay. I was hearing uh, somebody else talking. What happens? is they just keep going in this planning cycle. And I've talked to professional planning firms and they'll admit with, if they've got enough beer in them, that 80% of the plans they deliver are boilerplate. They basically change the illustrations, they change the names and places and all that, but it's basically the same plan over and over. And they're not taking any risk in doing that because they know nobody's going to read it, that it's, it's just for show. And uh, in fact, I talked to one fella who not only was a multiple national award-winning urban planner, but who ended up spending the last few years of his career with the American Planning Association as one of their top executives. When he retired, we got together and I said, so I'm writing my new book, the Reconomics book. I said, I need a formal definition from a real planner as to what a plan is. And his answer was, a plan is basically a list of crap that nobody ever looks at. This is from a professional planner. <laughs> so that's another thing that's holding back cities. It's this reliance on plans that people think because we've got a plan, then somehow it's going to improve our future. And nine times out of 10, it does nothing. It's sad. I see that every day in this affordable housing space and being the for-profit in this space against all the nonprofits. I'm not bashing nonprofits, but man, they really have the cities un, sometimes buy the short and skinnies because they, they come in and say, okay, we're going to do this and this, and but we need money. Right. And then you, since it's public funds, you get to see some of this stuff through freedom of information acts that I've seen, and they're charging double to build a house versus what I build. And the quality between the two is night and day. It's sad. And then it falls short when nonprofits and profits work together. It works very well along with the city. And like you said, nine out of 10 times it fails because right. everyone's in their silos and I see it on a daily basis. It's so, it's very frustrating and it right. doesn't change. And I can't get out of, I can't get help out of these individuals. So I have to stick to my silo. And all I do is I can only do as much as I can impact on our own 14, 15 houses at a time because the thought process is why do we want to work with a for-profit? So I said, right. why instead of beat them, join them. So I'll work with them and I'll, I'll get our nonprofit up and going and, and get that squared away, but I'm still going to run it like a for-profit. But at the end of the year, whatever profit we have, we're going to reinvest that into housing stock, whether it be a, a, a giveaway for down payment assistance, 
to a need to a, a, a deserving family, or maybe we get enough at the end of the year to where we can build a house for a, a deserving family. I don't know, right. but it's going to be more than just be a nonprofit and take money. Right. Uh, a tax attorney friend of mine uh, once said that nonprofit is a tax status. It's not a mission. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, your goal True. is still to make a profit. The difference is you don't call it a profit. You call it excess revenues. Yes. But I didn't actually answer your other qu your question. Uh, so, yeah, I got into all that fishing and moaning about what's wrong. What we're doing to fix things, which was your question, what are we actually doing to improve the situation, is our new Rising Places initiative is creating tools, uh, what we call Rising Places tools, that help everybody in the community, whether they're residents, elected leaders, business people, nonprofits, foundations, academics, whoever. Everybody in the community can use these tools to actually create that process I was talking about, to actually create the ongoing program, the vision, the strategy, the policy changes, the partnerships and the projects. This can all be done through these tools. And the tools basically enable the community to bypass whatever's in the way of making that happen, to, to do what seems to be impossible without those tools. Like I said, I've spent 20 years looking for some way for it to happen. And yes, it did happen in Chattanooga and they didn't have these tools. As a matter of fact, back in those days, they barely even had email, but that, that was such a rare thing. It's happened a few other times, Bill Bow, Spain, a few le like that, where you got really visionary leaders. The problem is that they all fall apart after a while because they didn't do it with intention. They didn't do it with any kind of guidelines or blueprint or framework, it, it was just all good instincts that enabled them to put together uh, that whole process. And because they didn't have a blueprint to work from, after, uh, as time goes by, pieces of that process fall apart uh, or people come in and start co-opting the process and the private sector takes over completely, that sort of thing. It falls apart after a while because there's no real rigor in place. So that's another thing. These tools are there to help ensure that the process remains long enough to make a real difference in the community on an ongoing basis. Are these tools available on your website or do you uh, have to, how, no, how, how does that work? Yeah, that's why I called it the new initiative. Okay. It actually goes live on uh, January 1st. And right now we're in a pre-launch phase of recruiting sponsors, partners, recruiting people into our resource network, people who have advice or skills or expertise or products or services that can help people do whatever they need to do in their community. So that resource network will be integrated with the tools so that as people are using, for instance, the tool for creating a vision, they can instantly see people who are available in their area to facilitate visioning meetings. That's that sort of thing. So the consultants, the architects, the planners, all of that can easily fit their offerings into the tools. Is there a place that someone can sign up or express yeah. interest? Yeah. If you go to the Reconomics Institute website, which is Reconomics.org, and on the menu, you'll see Rising Places. And that'll take you into all of this pre-launch phase stuff. So a corporation could become a sponsor or a nonprofit or foundation. It could become a partner. A local business person can become a local benefactor. And this is all stuff that helps the community revitalize, but at the same tough time, 
helps them build their own businesses or organizations. I'm going to check that out for myself because we got a nonprofit around the corner. That's, that would be interesting to, to look into. Yeah. You can actually become a local benefactor as a for-profit business. Oh, I'll take a look at both then. I guess I'm looking at both sides of that. Well, sir, I thank you for your time today. Is if people want to reach out to you, where's the best place they can contact you? Is it through the website or through yeah, I, some other my, means? My public speaking and consulting website is stormcunningham.com. Uh, okay. Or, or they can email me at storm at reconomics.org. What I'll do is I will link both of those email, or sorry, those websites to the actual show notes and people can reach out to you that way. All I right. thank you for your time today. It's been an honor. It's, I love what you're doing. It's near and dear to my heart because it's struggles that I deal with on a daily basis. Thanks for having me, Ryan. You enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks. Take care. Uh -huh. You too.